Hear the word of God from Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does, not, does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they, might they may have the right to the tree of life and may go, go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes the words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away that person, from that person, any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, church family. 
Hope you're well this beautiful, beautiful day. I like the cold weather, but what I don't like about the weather is when it's warm one day and cold the next, and then cold again and then warm again, I get confused. I'm just saying, I don't like that. The other day, I can't remember what day it was, we had a warm day, so the next day I wasn't paying attention, I wore shorts and a t-shirt, because it was like 78 degrees the day before. And then I was outside, it was really cold, and I was already late. So I wore shorts and a t-shirt, and my wife made fun of me. <laughs> I felt like that was a little mean of her, but it's okay. We, we got over it, we dealt with it with each other, and I was like, Gina, why did you make fun of me? She's like, Lawrence, does it take that long to open up the weather app on your phone? I'm like, it was warm yesterday. <sighs> so, all that to say, good morning. <laughs> Today's our last Sunday in our series in the book of Revelation. I, I hope it's been edifying for you. Can I just be honest, the pastors, we've loved being in this book together. We've loved teaching it, we've loved reading it, we loved processing it. Um, honestly, we've been in for a whole, I would say, three months now, probably, about that, and it still feels like it's been way too little without four months. Feels like we barely scratched the surface of so much of it. But I hope you got a lot out of this book. Um, we've, you've had it read, if you've been attending worship service, all, the whole book of Revelation has been read out loud to you. And so I hope you've enjoyed it and got gleaned so much out of it, and here we are now into the last chapter of the book. Last chapter of the book of Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible, right? And you gotta think, when you're reading a book, like the last chapter's gotta be important, right, of, of, a, of a book. So, here we are. And this last little section of this book feels a little disjointed, like, like a patchwork of final thoughts, warnings, and encouragements. Like, John got to the end, he's like, okay, I gotta make sure you get these last little words, these little last little thoughts, make sure they get this. But I hope you discover with me that this little section is full of intent, it has distinct meaning and emphasis. Now, the first thing I want you to see here is that this last section of Revelation is undoubtedly connected to the first section, the first part of chapter one. Not surprisingly, some scholars have found seven points of connection between these final parts and chapter one. So here they are. I'll put them on the screen for you guys. It's really easy. Both contain the phrase to show his servants the things what must or things or what must soon take place. Both sections, John is identified by name as the witness. They both contain the phrase, the time is near. Both contain the phrase, behold, he is, or I am, coming soon. Both contain the phrase, I am the alpha and the omega. Both has an angel being sent as a messenger. And both says, blessed are those or is the one who keeps what is written or the words of the prophecy of this book. So it's obvious there's points that are very similar in both chapter 1, the first few verses, and the chapter 22 at the very end. So it's clear to that the book of Revelation has intentional bookends in these chapters. And these bookends show the unity of the book and the intentionality of the way it was written. This book was meant to point the readers to this all-important message about Jesus from God, about what they're going through and the hope they have in a living and reigning Savior. The book of Revelation showed us that the, a sort of, from the very beginning, showed us the beginning of time and this dramatic playing of the course of history. It showed us the woman and the beast and the arrival of the one who conquered the beast. The plagues and the seals and the church age. And it showed us judgment that has come and that is coming. The consummation of the kingdom that will come when Jesus comes to judge the quick and the dead. Last week we saw the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And we've reached the end of the Bible, the end of the story, but like any great story, like the greatest story should be, our end is just the beginning. What do I mean by that? 
We have hit the written end of our story, our book, the Bible. This is the very last chapter, but this end is just pointing and giving way to a new beginning. Our end is not a real end. It is something start of something new and great. And I wonder, do you get that this morning? Do you believe that this morning? Do you live like that this morning? Let me reiterate this fact over and again to you that our end of our life on this earth and the day of judgment that is coming when we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come, is not to end for us. It begins the time of the actual feature film. It's not a time for the true life we are called to, our eternal home and our citizenship. We've been living in the previews. We've been living in the trailer. And they're wonderful, but it's just a taste of the real film. When our time comes, we have our hope that the end is just the beginning. Time for the real thing. I love this hope, and I know some of us just can't wait. We see the brokenness in the world, and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come, and wipe away every tear in our eye. My son is one of those like that. He can't wait for something good to happen when he's told that something good is going to happen. Uh, my son just can't wait. He, he, something, something is, we told him just recently, we told him way too soon. This is our mistake as parents. We told him way too soon that his, his grandparents and his aunt and uncle and his cousins were coming for Christmas. Right? Told him way too early. Because literally every morning he wakes, wakes up, are they coming today? Today? And I'm like, no, Christmas today. He sings songs about them coming. He's like, how many Hadamiji are coming today? And he's, he's bouncing up and down. He's just so happy. He FaceTimes now, and he's like, why aren't you here? Like, what, are, what are you doing? Well, you're supposed to be here with me. He literally, every time the doorbell rings, and we get a lot of doorbell rings because Amazon loves, loves us right now, he literally runs to the door every single time. He's like, how many Hadamiji? Which, by the way, is, in Korean is grandma, grandpa. And he's freaking out. He just can't wait. He's one of those guys that he's just so excited and he's just eagerly anticipating the arrival of his family and he's pumped. He's so pumped because he knows that he loves his family. He knows the benefit of their arrival. He longs for their company. Waypoint Church, can I just ask an honest question? Do you really believe that the end is the beginning? If you so, then it should radically affect the way we live the now. You should live with hope that all suffering, even your suffering, even great suffering, is temporary. We should live with the confidence that death has no sting. We should live as though the eternal has eternally more significance than the temporal. The book of Revelation was written to Christians who were being persecuted, and this book was meant to give them encouragement. And the early church was able to endure persecution, death, and martyrdom because they believed the end was the beginning. They believed that we're not there yet, that we're on a journey to the end. I love this. My people, my people, can I just say, as we go into this, can you, can we, I just want you to grasp this truth first. That your struggles in this life, even though they are hard, as followers of Jesus, it is temporary. It is passing. And those of us who put stock in our status and our worth and what we've accomplished in this life, let me tell you that those things also are temporary. It's fleeting. It is passing. Our identity, our citizenship, our home happens after the end.
Do you believe that? Do you choose to live like that? This idea of right now that we're still on this journey. This is kind of what Waypoint's name came from, by the way. You guys don't know this. The name Waypoint Church came from this idea that a waypoint is a marker, kind of a stop along the journey. You know? And so for us, what we're professing as Waypoint Church is that we're we're, we're ambassadors here on this earth. We're advancing the kingdom, but we're not home yet. This is the destination that God has called us to be for this time. And in this life, we're going to live in this life as, as sojourners, as ambassadors, as dignitaries that a, a royal empire has sent us to go and advance his kingdom in this place. We acknowledge that right here, right now, while God's called us here to this place now, and to shape it and reform it, ultimately, our identity, our citizenship is heaven. And so Waypoint is just a marker, just a spot, a stop along it where we invite others who are along this journey to come together and live it out together. And so we're on this journey, and on the journey, I feel like a typical journey, like I imagine this like a car, a road trip. There are questions that you ask when you're on a road trip, right? My son Hudson is in this stage in his life where he asks so many questions. And at first I was like, yay, he's curious and he's going to learn. I just hate him now. I love him. I don't mean him, <laughs> the questions. And uh, it's so funny, you, you can see how, how much, what kind of day that me and my wife have been and how patient we are with his questions. You know, like the longer days we've had, we're like, we just get so short. Like, we were more patient that day, we're like, well, we start answering them, but then we get to the point like, every question leads to another question, so no more. But one of the things that every time we go on a car trip now, if I, if I don't tell him ahead of time where we're going, if he doesn't know ahead of time, it's always like, where are we going? How long do we get there? Who are we gonna see? And I'm like, just, just, just get in the car. <laughs> but those are the common questions, right, we ask when you're on a journey, right? Is, are we there yet? When are we going to get there? Are we there yet? When are we going to get there? And I want us to go through this Revelation chapter 22 and see the answers to this journey, the closing answers to this journey that John's commending us to go on. First question is, are we there yet? When are we going to get there? And the answer to the first question is the same answer the early church got and we're still getting the answer is, when are we going to get there? Soon. Are we there yet? Is it time? Is Jesus coming now? The answer is, soon. Verse 7 says, look, I'm coming soon. Verse 12, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I'll give to each person according to what they have done. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And when we, when we will see all things remade and new and the glorious Eden... Soon is the, book of the, is the answer to the book of Revelation. Soon and very soon, we are going to see... Anybody? Yeah? It, fun thing about that song, this is a true story. One of my best friends in my life growing up, his name is Soon. Soon, S-O-O-N. That's his name, Soon. And so I, I, we were in the choir together. That was one of the songs that we sang in choir together. And so it was kind of funny. It's like, it's like singing a song that goes, Lawrence and very Lawrence. It's just weird, right? <laughs> We'd be like, soon and very soon. Okay. But that's the answer. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. That's what it says in the book of Revelation. And there's a sense of immediacy, imminence about the coming of Jesus and the coming of this beautiful garden, this incredible temple, this amazing city, of the living God, New Jerusalem. But how can that be? Soon was the answer given 2,000 years ago, and soon hasn't happened yet. Right? You can't really say something is soon if it didn't happen 2,000 years, right? What does soon really mean then? And I believe the Bible is so intentional about using this answer. The answer is that every generation of believer needs to live 
as if it is soon. Does that make sense? Not in a literal soon. We don't know what soon literally means. It could be however many years. There's no range on it. It's more like we live with eager expectation and anticipation. That we feel the end is a near reality. The why did the Bible not say, oh, well, when are you coming? I'll be coming in five minutes or 10 years or 100 years or I'll be coming after a, a aeon or whatever. No, he uses the word soon as intentional because he wants all believers of all times to live in this expectant reality that Jesus is coming. Every believer of every age, of every generation, of every culture, of every world. Do you hear what I'm saying? I love this about the Bible. The Bible isn't just set, it's, it's, it's not set just so that only one culture at one time can appreciate it. It's written in such an incredible, miraculous manner that the God of the universe wrote and revealed himself to us that it can fit in whatever political climate, whatever cultural context, whatever world it goes into. Soon is the answer for all of us. Are you living your life with eager expectation that he's coming soon? That all things will be made right soon? The next question, first question is, when are we going to get there? How far away? How long? Second question, where are we going? What's our destination? What is this journey that we're on? If you look at verses 1 to 5 of Revelation 22 with me, last week you remember Pastor Danny worked through chapter 21, and we noticed that the new creation John is describing is pictured as a great city, New Jerusalem had a holy of holies and the inner sanctuary, the temple of God was replaced, all this other stuff, and now we just had God himself. And these first five verses, chapter 22, still another dimension to add to this picture. This time we see new creation as a garden. The city, that temple is a garden, not just any garden, it's Eden restored and surpassed. Let me say that again. The picture of chapter 20 to the very beginning is that it's not just a garden, it's the actual picture of the garden of Eden restored and surpassed. You can see in the text, you look at it with me, there's notice a river. The river of life running through the middle of the street from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And on the either side there is a tree. John's probably using a collective noun here that meaning trees of all sorts. And that's reinforced when you understand that John is building on the vision of Ezekiel chapter 47, where Ezekiel saw the river of life, or a life-giving river, flowing from the temple. And on either side of the river in Ezekiel's vision are many trees. Their fruit, Ezekiel says, will be, will be for food and their leaves for healing. So clearly Ezekiel had Eden in mind as he pictures the new creation. And so there's a river in Eden and the tree of life is located there. But right away as we think about how John describes Eden restored in chapter 22 of the last book of the Bible, there are contrasts with Eden from the first book of the Bible in Genesis. After all, in Eden there's just one tree of life. But in the new creation, it says there are many. And notice verse 2 that the tree of life bears 12 kinds of fruit once every month. 12 kinds of fruit, 12 months of the year, all year round. Where have you guys heard the 12 before, anybody? Give me a couple, just shout them out. Disciples, tribes, right? We've heard that number 12 quite a lot as we work through the book of Revelation. It's, it's a number laden with symbolism. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. It's a number, the symbol for the full company of the people of God. How many baskets were left over after Jesus fed the 5,000? 12. For the full company of the people of God. So what we're being told is that this new creation, the fruit of the tree of life, will be an abundant supply. 
matching perfectly the needs of all the people of God without any remainder. All the gods redeemed will eat of the fruit of the trees of the life, and the nations will find healing in its leaves. It's a picture now of fullness, of abundance, of sufficiency. The salvation that Jesus wins in its full consummation is greater than the blessedness that Adam knew before the fall. Hear that. The Eden of Revelation chapter 22 is greater and more glorious than the Eden of Genesis chapter 2. The reality of the world to come far surpasses the world we've lost. We all have access now to the fruit of the tree of life all the time. And healing is not just for Adam and Eve, but it's for all the nations. Ultimately, it's the symbol of the curse undone. And so verse 3 puts it, no longer will there be anything accursed. We were with Adam and Eve in the first Eden as they fell from their original righteousness in which they had been created. We saw the curse of God fall upon their sin, afflicting both them as our first parents and all descendants after them, and even the world itself fell to the first sin. But we also heard God promise in Genesis 3 a redeemer, the seed of the woman, who would deliver them, rescue them, make all things new. And the child of promise spoken of, we saw as Jesus himself, the one who crushed the serpent's head by the means of the cross. And here in Revelation 22, at last, the final outworking of his victory is revealed. And that ancient curse is completely undone. John says, no longer will they be a curse. That's the message here, that he wants to hammer into his people. It's not just the undoing of sin, not just the restoration of Eden lost. It's the outflowing of the river of life that comes from God. It's access to the fruit of the tree of life. It's, it's healing for the nations. It's, there's more grace, more blessing, more happiness. We will know more of God, have a sweeter and more intimate communion with Christ in the fullness of the Holy Spirit and in new creation than Adam ever did or ever could have before he fell. We can know him not only as creator and lawgiver as Adam did, but we know him as redeemer and savior and father who has adopted us. God took occasion to see from our sin and misery after Eden was lost to display to the world more of himself. He, he took the occasion, this, the, the situation here of an expressing and displaying more of himself, more of his redemptive power, more of his pursuit more of his grace. So Revelation chapter 22, we see not Eden restored, but Eden surpassed. More of God in Christ by his spirit, more joy, more rest, more glory than Eden ever could attain. And so we see in verse three, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. Guys, get this. They will see his face. All throughout the Bible, he couldn't see his face, could he? Right? Moses had to have his back turned, right? There's too much glory. But here, we see his face. Face to face. What was the blessing? May his face shine upon you. Do you guys know that blessing, right? That's the idea of God turning his face to you, but you still, in that blessing, couldn't look back at him. That was as you went. But for the first time, it's saying is restored. And now you can see, I picture this guy as like a little baby, like me picking up my son, and I just stare at him. And he's staring back at me, and he's just smiling. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And he's just like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> we see him face to face. There'll be no more night. 
They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. How beautiful is that? This is not just Eden restored. This is Eden surpassed. This is not just, let's go back to the Garden of Eden before he fell. No, this is, we did fall. But he pursued, showed grace, showed mercy, and restored and made it better. This is new. And now we know him as a pursuer, as deliverer, as redeemer. Later on, it's John's using the language he used in chapter 7 but also here in verse 14 where he says, God's people who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. That, John says, is what we must make sure we've all done if we were to have a right to the tree of life and entry into New Jerusalem. We must have our robes washed white in the blood of the lamb. Wesley's saying, his blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. I wonder if you... And I here right now, I wonder if you really get what that is. I mean, do you get the idea that when he say our robes, it's talking about our righteousness, our stance, our status, our identity before God. Can we say our robes, we've been washed clean by the blood? That's just the only entranceway into this new relationship, into this new identity, into this new heavens and new earth. It's the only way in is that if your robes have been washed by the blood of Christ. It's not saying that you're not a sinner. It's saying you are a sinner. It's saying you have come to be washed in the blood. Because that's to say you've come to Jesus who died to make you clean. You trusted wholly in him to save you. And my question for those of you who have not done this, Will you do this this morning? Are you clean? Have you washed your robes in the blood of the lamb? The gates of the eternal city in this forever reality, the sting of death will still exist for you if you don't wash your robes in the blood of the lamb. This, the, the sting of death and, and the, the end of all things will exist for you. But for us, those who have, have our robes washed, the end is the beginning. The sting of death is no longer real. We have entry into the city. There's an old song that says, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Now I want you to hear this, my people. That it's not this symbolic, just this idea of, 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 of like, you know, the, what I want you to understand that this is more than just kind of going to church and just kind of acknowledging and every once in a while being like, oh, Jesus did something cool and I go to church and this is what it's about. Guys, I want you to tell you that this is placing your trust in a Savior God who you believe ransomed himself, died upon the cross in your place, in your stead. Because he wanted to show you that God is a God of both justice and grace. It's acknowledging yourself as someone who's dependent upon the righteousness and the deeds of another. Because you're, even you at your best, fall so short. It's saying, God, I know my human condition. I know that I want to be known and I want to be loved and I crave purpose, but I struggle with this idea of being known because if I'm known and I look truly at myself, I see the sin and I don't want my sin and my reality to be the just the determination of what is true and just and beautiful in the world because I know where I fall short so that I need something that is truly true, truly just, truly righteous 
I still need to be loved. Even with all my sin, with all my stuff. So I'm stuck in this quandary, quandary of this living in this reality of needing righteousness, needing justice, at the same time needing grace, needing mercy, needing love. And I find it ultimately in the work of Jesus Christ. And so I confess that Jesus, you are Savior. And by your death, you addressed this issue, this condition. My people, if you believe that, or if you're near this place and you don't know to believe that, I plead with you, I ask you, today, may this be the day that you believe and you confess and you choose to follow this Jesus with your life because he is worthy and it's good and your robes being washed by his blood is the only entry into this new reality. I also love this. If you notice the tense that John uses, it says it's a present continuous. You can translate it to blessed are those who are washing their robes in his blood. Those who wash in the blood of Christ, wash and wash and wash. It's a habit of life. We're never away from the cross. The first time we come to the cross, yes, Jesus washes away the guilt of our sin once for all. But soon we learn that we need to come back and again and again because often the stain remains. Its polluting presence is not so quickly laundered out of our lives. The blessedness of Eden surpassed doesn't belong to the holier than thou who believe themselves to be morally superior and who somehow manage, at least in their own minds, to keep themselves unsullied by the, the moral, crumbling morals of this world. No, those who enter the new creation are those who know that every day I must come. Every day I'm dependent. Every day I need the Lamb. Where are we going? Those whose robes have been clean, our journey, our destination is to an Eden that has been surpassed. To a city. Guys, I want you to hear this, guys. Some of you guys might be like, well, I don't really like cities. I kind of like forests and mountains. Guys, the cities, it's not necessarily like you're going to go to a city, right? I just want you to just know that. Please hear that very well, right? Well, like, I'd rather go to an island or a beach in heaven or something like that. <laughs> guys... <laughs> Really quick, let me just help explain this. It could, it could be how you read it. I'm just saying, this is just showing that what was in the ancient Near East, cities symbolized safety, right? There were warlords, there were conquering armies constantly. There were people being, if you're out on a village on your own, you could be conquered by whoever at any point, bandits or other warlords or whatever. Cities symbolize, oh, if you're in the walls of a city, you're protected by that sovereign, that sovereign's might, Simply symbolized peace and civilization. That's why the ocean symbolized chaos. When it says there's no ocean, there's no sea in the book of Revelation, it doesn't mean that, oh, I love beaches. It doesn't mean there's no water. It literally is just saying that the symbol of chaos is no longer there. You guys with me so far? Does that make sense? Some of you guys be like, oh, what? You can ask me questions later. Or you just email Pastor Daddy. This is our destination. This is where we're going. We're going to see our God, our Lord, face to face. So we go to the third question that Hudson would ask. First, how long? Two, where are we going? Three, who's going to be there? Who's going to be there? And who John wants us to fix our gaze, our attention upon fully is on Jesus it's actually Jesus himself who interrupts throughout this chapter. He interacts as John reports. It's not so much that John wants us to fix our eyes on Jesus, although that's true. It's rather Jesus himself demands our attention. Look at verse 13. It says, Behold, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
Back in chapter 1, verse 8, it was the Lord God Almighty who said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And now here in chapter 22, it's Jesus who says it. So don't let anyone ever tell you that the scripture is never clear that Jesus is God. Over and over again, Jesus claimed to be God. Okay, so if you ever hear somebody like, well, you know, Jesus never said he was God. False. Over and over again, he did. Now, at first glance, these three statements that Jesus makes regarding himself, the Alpha Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, they all appear to say essentially the same thing. And to some extent, that's actually true. But the last line of the three, I think, is particularly interesting. Jesus says, I am the beginning and the end. Literally, he says in the Greek, it's I am the Ark, or the Arche, or the Arche, and the Telos. The Ark and the Telos. He's the ark that literally means that he's not just the first in a sequence. He means he's the source and the archetype of every other in the sequence. You guys with me so far? So everything that is, everything that ever will be derives its existence and takes its fundamental design in relation to God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the archetype. He's the ark. He's the beginning. He's the source. And he's the telos. Not just a conclusion, the end point but the destiny. Dale Johnson puts it this way. He says, the telos of an acorn is an oak tree. The telos of creation is Jesus Christ. He is our destiny. We will become like him, for we shall see him as he is. History, creation, life, your life, all of it, it's all moving toward him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. He is the telos of it all. It's all for Jesus then you look down at verse 16 where Jesus interjects again and makes a similar point. He says, I am the root and descendant of David. Just as he is the first and the last beginning and the end, he is the root and the offspring of David. He is the root of, the, of, of David the king. King David comes from him and yet is at the same time he's the son of David. David's heir, the Messiah. He's the God who became man in the person, Jesus Christ. And we're told he is the bright and morning star. What a wonderful title. The bright morning star, the last title that Jesus ever takes of himself in scripture. The last title he gives himself is not king, not judge, not lord, but bright and morning star. The morning star appears when night is at its darkest. There's still hours till dawn, then the morning star appears and daybreak is coming. All the darkness notwithstanding, daybreak is coming. And that's Jesus, John says. The morning star who shines in the darkness to reminds us that he is coming. That he's the one we're waiting for. He's the one that we need. Who do we see? Who's going to be there? My people, Jesus will be there. I hope you get it by now. I hope you got to the point. So I hope it doesn't offend you when I say that heaven isn't going to be about you. It's not just going to be an end of suffering, though that's going to be true. It isn't about glorious reunions that are await us with all our loved ones. What is heaven about? What will make heaven, heaven? They're becoming face to face with Jesus. What makes the bliss of heaven so incredible, what makes heaven so worth it, is that we will see Jesus face to face. Not just the sinlessness, not just the end of sickness and death, not just our imperishable bodies. Those are all wonderful things. But what makes heaven, heaven, is Jesus. Do you hear that? Seeing him face to face, my people, 
Oh, my people, I want you to, to believe and see the value, the worth. I would love it to just gaze upon the beauty, even in our imperfect way, even with, with mirrors that are distorted right now, even in our imperfect manner of seeing him. But one day we will see him truly face to face and be more beautiful than even when I look in my son's eyes. It would be more beautiful than anything else you could ever imagine. Jesus is what makes heaven, heaven. So how do we respond to that, knowing that Jesus is telling us of all things, the end, the goal, the destiny, the prize, and the reward of every believing heart? Our passage teaches us to respond. In particular, it teaches us to respond by saying, Come. Actually, by saying come in two different directions. In verse 17, we are to cry, come first to the world. The spirit and bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the waters of life without price. The Holy Spirit, John says, is pleading for you to come by his word. The bride that is the church, that is us, also cries for the world to come and witness in proclaiming a proclamation. So even John himself here invites you to come. If you're thirsty, the water of life, he says, is available to you. Come without price, freely by faith in Jesus and drink. Come to Christ. So one of our responses is to tell the world, tell the people around us to come, eat, drink, to come and experience, to come and gaze upon the beauty of Jesus. Come to Christ. Come now. Remember the time is near, soon. One day... One day, Jesus will come to judge. And that day, it's too late to say, come to the world. A chance to come to Jesus, the waters of life will be gone forever one day. Verse 11 puts it this way, the evildoer then will still do evil, the filthy will still be filthy, but the righteous will have the right to be righteous by the work of Jesus. So come today. Come right now. Come and drink to the satisfaction of your soul. Wash your garments in the blood of Jesus. But then it says in verse 20, not only are you trying to cry out to the world to come, we also cry to Lord Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Invite the world before Jesus comes. Do it praying while still praying for Jesus to come as you do. Plead with sinners to come to Christ and plead with Christ to come to the world. Do you see that? Do you hear that beautiful, beautiful tension to live in? As we're called to be the ones who convey to the world. We say, come and gaze upon the beauty. We need to be ones that is the bride of Christ who is so captivated by the beauty of Christ. We're the brides that are so captivated, captivated by the beauty of Christ that the world wants to see, what, what you're looking at there? Right? Do you guys ever like, get so annoyed when you're driving in the car and everybody's like looking at a car accident? Right? That's something terrible and everybody's staring at you. You're like, what are they staring at? I want to see too. Right? You all do it. Don't act like you're better than that. I know you do. And that's something not even beautiful. But you ever see something just majestic? Last week I showed you a picture of a whale jumping out of the water. Something incredible. You know, I remember taking a bunch of high school kids. This is my youth choir back in the day. And I was a college intern. And uh, we took a bunch of kids to the Grand Canyon. And everybody, all the kids who haven't been there, they were like, who cares if a hole in the ground? Like, their kids were joking around about it. I don't care about the Grand Canyon. It's no big deal. And I still remember when we first got out there and all the kids came out and they just looked at it. They were actually all speechless. They were like, oh, it's bigger than a hole in the ground. <laughs> I remember I thought a little bit of the same thing. I'm like, I looked out there and I'm like, ah, oh, the Grand Canyon. What a Grand Canyon. <laughs> it was incredible. And I just remember being speechless. I'm like, guys, 
people? Are we looking at Jesus and we're captivated by his beauty? That people want to know, what are you looking at? What do you see? Your life looks so incredible. Why does your life look so beautiful? Because you're saying, because I get to model it. I look at the greatest model. I look at Jesus. But do you also pray, come Lord Jesus? Do you believe? Do you believe that his coming is is your good? Do you truly believe where your destination is? Where you're going? My people, may we live in such a manner. May we live seeing and captivated by the love and beauty of Christ. May we say, come Lord Jesus, and we say to the world, come and see him. Can I tell you something? Can I tell you something? It doesn't have to be where right now you're like, okay, right now I believe so fully that I don't fear death ever again and all this kind of stuff. It doesn't have to be. But can I tell you, it's a beautiful process that you could walk in. And you can start now to start choosing to say, no, 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 I've seen and I'm captivated by that beauty. And every day I want to be further and more captivated by it. And every day that death is sting, the fear of death goes lower and lower because I'm more and more captivated and I believe more and more every day where my final destination in my home is. My prayer, my people, for all of you is may we see the value and the beauty of Christ and may we show the world it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we gaze upon your beauty, Jesus, and we are moved. We gaze upon your wonder and your love and your grace and your passionate pursuit, and we are moved. We see your love poured out. We see that our robes are made clean by your blood. We see that you are worthy to open the scroll and to sit enthroned forever. Oh, Jesus, you are beautiful. Jesus, you are glorious. Jesus, you are incredible. God, may we say to the world around us, come and see this Jesus. And we cry out to you, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. God, we thank you. And Lord, we ask, Lord, that right now in this place, if there's anybody in here who does not know you as Savior, and as Redeemer, God, I pray that you stir in their hearts a desire to get to know you in such a way. God, we ask you to move in their hearts that even now and even today they can respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.